I was never naive to the fact that big business is about profits. But I think I'm a little bit disappointed when it's profit at all costs. We made the mistake, we found it, we fixed it, and we gave the money back to our customers as quickly as we could. The exposure of the Commonsure scandal and the subsequent bank inquiry hearings for the heads of Australia's big four banks are just two examples of the amount of scrutiny on the banking and finance industry's culture at the moment. It was also the topic of a panel conversation recently between regulators, bankers and ethics and culture experts. Among the panellists was... Paul Kaufman, the Dean of the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne. I spoke to Paul at the event and asked him why there was one chair empty on the panel. I think what we observe in practice is that while CEOs are full of good intent and set the tone, as, as they say, it often does not filter down to the lower ranks, or at least there's, an, there's a, a suspicion that it doesn't always filter down to, to the lower ranks, down the hierarchy. Uh, what we've observed today, I think, is uh, how difficult it was for the organisers to find middle management ready to step into this discussion and say what their take is on, on, on culture, how they influence it and how they get influenced by what happens from the top. So it's a crucial, uh, it's a linchpin here really to make sure that there's a transmission of what is deemed to be very important from the top, the boardroom, the, the management, to the work floor where ultimately the actual decisions are being taken. When we're talking about upholding culture, particularly in banking and finance, there were, the buck was kind of passed between different professions today almost, between lawyers in companies and media and communications professionals in companies. Do you think there's any merit in talking about the role of specific professions, either inside or outside the industry, in terms of monitoring and upholding this? I think you touch on something really important there. I think when we talk about culture, we make two mistakes. We assume that there's something which is homogenous against every workplace, and that's clearly not the case. So different workplaces have their unique culture. In fact, that makes them unique and makes them survive as a business. If they were all the same, they would probably disappear. So we see differences across organizations, but we also see differences within organizations according to the roles that are being fulfilled. So culture for, uh, for the marketing team, for example, would be quite different from culture from the trading team in, in an organization. And I don't think we should make the mistake in developing a single training course to improve culture that fits all those stakeholders. I think we need to tailor the culture messages to the different functional roles in those organizations. Do you think there are some disconnects in terms of protecting certain employees or preventing certain employees from learning, particularly upper management, about cultural problems? Do you think there's a fear comes into that? Fear of the law, fear of reprisal, fear of whistleblowing? I think if you uh, look at the responsibility for directors on boards, if you look at the uh, possible uh, repercussions for CEOs of losing their job, I think they're painfully aware that they cannot ignore the concept of culture. So I don't think it is born by fear. I think it is by a reasonable acceptance that if you have to be on top of the job, so to speak, to understand what you're doing, how you're doing it, how it is impacting the organization, you need to invest your time in culture. And I think we see that. I think that is clearly evident, is that CEOs and boards of directors are heavily investing time in this. What isn't always clear is, again, how this then transmits to the entire organization. 
Greg Medcraft from ASIC was asked in particular about the bank's response, who have been in the spotlight at the moment in terms of culture, to management getting involved in kind of speaking to employees and, and being aware of what's happening on the ground, so to speak. And what was implied is that the banks weren't interested in, in interfering, as they called it. And and Medcraft called for, for bank executives to step down and to, to be amongst their employees and to observe what's going on. What do you think is the appropriate response here? That's, that's a bit of a difficult one to answer because I wonder whether he was really talking about the senior management of those organisations being reluctant to actually step in and make changes. And I think you've got to keep in mind that they're not trained sociologists, they're not trained HR specialists. So they lack that kind of specialist knowledge that would be necessary to actually make that changes. So that doesn't mean that they're off the hook, so to speak. So they clearly need to take a leading role and embracing that kind of training, but they can't do that themselves. And I think that's what Greg meant when he was talking about not interfering in that process, uh, given that that might actually backfire on them. When we're talking about combating this in specific programs, is there an element of being able to be prescriptive or to be able to set goals when it comes to conduct in monitoring culture? Because obviously it's a very tricky one to, to try and tackle. Conduct is constrained, as we know, because we can't be sure that culture is giving the, the right signals for people to take the right actions, their conduct subsequently. So that's why there's a legal framework, that's why there's a regulatory framework, and there is a code of conduct internally being set as the parameters that bound the types of behavior that can occur given a culture. But again, I think that tackling conduct is probably not that productive. I think what those organizations really want, and that is also what Craig tried to explain, is that do we really want to treat our customers in this particular way? Once you've answered that question, then conduct should become natural. So culture should create a conduct that comes natural rather than being prescribed by regulators, lawyers, and the like. When it comes to tackling this problem, there was a bit of discussion today about how to recognise the problem in terms of big data, in terms of uh, recognising certain products that might be an issue. Do you think that there can be certain um, rules and regulations around this type of conduct that might improve culture overall? I think this is all about the lack of evidence that we observe in, uh, in, in workplaces. We don't really have a metric to characterize culture. Probably we shouldn't. It's not something that you can put into a number. But we definitely need some evidence of whether particular types of culture are delivering better results, as is often assumed. So we assume that there's some theoretical evidence that that would occur, but we lack the hard data. When Greg was talking about the big data opportunities, yes, I, I share that optimism, but I'm also a little bit concerned in that a lot of that activity where the big data originates, a lot of the fintech, the new technology that is being adopted by industry, that's in fact an area which is woefully underregulated. that typically is outside the regulatory scope of ESIC. So I'm not that convinced that having that data per se is going to give us great insights in terms of how good culture translates into good business outcomes. Do you think there are certain products that need to be unbundled and making them more transparent for customers and really serving the customer in the best way? Uh, yes and no. Uh, if, if it concerns complicated products for retail borrowers, retail investors, then absolutely, if only to overcome the huge gap in information symmetry, so the information asymmetry that exists there. If we're talking about complex products 
for highly sophisticated investors, for other investment banks doing business with other investment banks, then there's probably less of a need to do so. And in fact, decoupling is quite likely going to increase the cost because instead of having a single complicated transaction, you now get multiple small transactions that tends to increase the cost. So that could be counterproductive. Taking the bank bill swap rate as an example, is there a way for people to understand whether or not banks are doing the right thing around these sort of issues if, if you don't want to unbundle them to the point that they're you know, simple to the everyday person? So that's an interesting question and it really boils down to who needs to know so do you really want the mum and dad in the street to be able to give you an insightful answer in terms of uh, what happened with the bank bill swap rate? Maybe, maybe. It's interesting if they can, but maybe that is too much to ask in this day and age of uh, information overload. You definitely want the regulators, you definitely want senior management of those organisations to understand the intricacies of those products. I only ask because the impact does uh, boil down sometimes to, to that level, to affecting investments at a smaller level as well as, as at a higher level. Which, which, is, which is, again, why, they need, why these institutions need to be held accountable by the regulators, by industry bodies, for example. There might be a role for the Australian Bankers Association in this to make that more transparent. And you're absolutely right. I think if you, uh, if, if you want to make clear to the public that financial institutions, banks, serve a major important beneficial role for society, then you need to do a better job in explaining how that actually works. There was some discussion today about different things that can be done to improve culture and do you think there is some role for incentives in, in helping improve culture? I think that is coming in. I think today mention was made of integrated reporting in that particular setting and, and uh, balanced scorecards. Those kinds of concepts are much more comprehensive than the narrowly minded profit boosting uh, meshes that were used in the past to justify compensation schemes. Unfortunately, the evidence is rather anecdotal, so we, we lack the solid evidence base. But there's some evidence that uh, organizations that have got well-developed thought through corporate social responsibility programs are actually delivering better results. It's very much a, a people issue. Uh, I'm not the expert in human resources and, and how we screen candidates. I thought it was quite interesting to hear uh, being advocated that uh, rather than having a single interview and base your recruitment decision on that, we should go through six or even 11 different rounds of interviewing. Yet that's been done for the past 10, 20, 30 years, yet we see those problems. So somehow there might have been a disconnect between the type of questions that are being asked during those interviews that aren't really discovering particular cultural problems that might occur if you offer that particular person a job. There was a sense of frustration in some of the questions from the audience today as to why this hasn't been fixed already, if, this, if there have been problems in the past, if, if culture is changing, if the way banking is changing, why aren't we keeping up? I think it is, uh, one of the interesting questions was a longitudinal question, was it, was it different 20 years ago, 30 years ago? And the answer really was that, well, the industry is no longer the same as it was 20, 30 years ago. I think that's really important to keep in mind. If you think about the sheer scale of this industry, how many people are taking it for, for, for customers very important decisions, then, and, and I hate to be an apologist here, but then to say that there is a major structural fundamental problem in the industry is overstretching the evidence. That's not the case. So by and large, the participants in this industry are behaving the way they ought to be behaving from a cultural perspective. 
I think it is a, a matter for the future to make that more widespread and to avoid those, those occasions when things go off the rails. That's Paul Kaufman, the Dean of the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne. Why don't you just ask an economist? My question is, do low and negative borrowing rates stymie demand and investment rather than stimulating it? So it's a great question, and it's a very topical one recently because we've had very, very low, historically low levels of interest rates, and the economy's been very sluggish around the world and not picking up from that. So it does raise the question of, hang on, is there something that's all reversed uh, in an environment where you have those low interest rates? So I think the way to think of that is that there are two effects. There's the actual effect of making money cheaper, which is what you do when you lower interest rates, and that should boost investment and demand and GDP growth. But there's a reason that you're in an environment with extremely low interest rates, and that's because things like investment and demand are actually very substandard relative to the normal levels. So you can't just look at the actual level of interest rates and unpack the effect that's going on because there are, there are two things going on. There's a reason that you're there and then there's the actual, if you like, treatment effect of lowering interest rates. I think from a central banker's perspective, I'd say you want to cut interest rates as low as you can consistent with financial stability. So just like the RBA have been very concerned about, you don't want to fuel asset price bubbles, say a housing bubble in Australia. So you have to be very attentive to that issue. As, a, as an investor, I think you just need to look look at the situation of how much does it cost me and what do I think the future value of that investment is. Policy, ideally, is working on both of those fronts to make the investment opportunities more attractive and to lower the cost of funding. An interesting question, and thanks to economist Richard Holden for answering it. If you've got a question for Ask an Economist, record it or write it down in an email and send it to ask at theconversation, all one word, .edu.au. That's ask at theconversation.edu.au. Business Briefing's theme music is by Ben Sound, and I'm Jenny Henderson, Business and Economy Editor. If you like this episode, you can find more and subscribe on iTunes. 